0: Alright, the reading this morning is in Luke 16 if you're able please rise for the reading of the word Luke 16 verses 14 to 17 the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Thank you. You may be seated.
1: Amen. Thank you, Doug. And I think your, your first congregational prayer as a grandfather. So way to go to you and Elise. Thankful for that. <clears throat> there you go. Do keep your fingers open to Luke, but I'm going to start with a, a reading from Deuteronomy 11. See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord, your God, which I command to you today. And the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord, your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. This famous lines from the foundation of God's people to Israel. And if you think about that, what's it presenting? It's presenting two ways. God says there's a way of great blessing laid out before you that if you obey me and you're molded to be my people, it's a way of blessing. Alternatively, you can say, no thanks, do our own thing, and that will be a way of curses. You can think how this theme runs straight through. Say something like Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. You remember that famous line, Jeremiah saying, you stand at the crossroads and determine the ancient paths, choose the, the good way. There's two ways. I think of in the writing of James, you know, Jesus' half-brother. You remember what he says? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You can see it again. The world or God? Two ways. In one of the earliest surviving works after the New Testament, this early Christian document called the Didache, just means the teaching, that document opens with the declaration of there are two ways. There's the way of life, And the way of death. And just this week, that us pastors, we were at a conference, a preaching conference, and you know how they give you the little freebies at the beginning in the bag? So I'm going through my freebies, and lo and behold, I pull out, look, I know you can't see this from that, but it's called The Two Ways to Live God's Way or My Way. And the reason we open like that is because if you have been following us, following along with Luke, you'll note that these four verses, Luke 16, 14 to 17, might strike you as a bit oddly placed. Say, well, we've just had this great teaching from Jesus. He's been using parables, short, illustrative sayings, right? We've got the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, famously the two lost sons, last week the shrewd manager uh, who's teaching us about shrewdness and stewardship. And now you've got this kind of excursus. I laugh, some English editions, you know, this is uh, some just put on here in like, And here are a few other sayings, you know, they don't quite know. So what's this doing here? Why did Luke insert this? Why did God, we could say, in his providence, give us these couple of verses? And I think the reason is, is he's presenting us once again with these two paths. That the Pharisees, who are Jesus' chief antagonists, stand for the kind of religious and moral society, the kind of, we could say, kind of every person, and the preaching of the kingdom, as Jesus would say, well, here's what God is doing in the ministry, in my ministry, he would say, and there's a stark contrast. And you get a little hint of it there in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. I'll say, how incredibly relevant is this verse? So you'll notice, if you remember last week, what happens. Jesus is talking about money, and he, he basically says, instead of thinking about ownership think about stewardship that the money is not yours but the money that you have should be used to invest in eternity accumulate friends for eternal dwellings you remember that in other words that it kind of takes down you know look at look at me look at how much i've earned he takes us down a notch and says don't you know god's entrusted that to you use it for his glory and the pharisees hear this and they're they're pricked Why are they pricked? Because this is an idol for them, as it is for many of us. It's so very easy. It's so very easy to become lovers of money. And for us to remember, an often misquoted saying, how many times do we hear, well, you know, the Bible says that money's the root of all evil. Say, money is not the root of all evil. Money's a good thing that God has entrusted to his people. The issue is when we love our money. You know, I. I see this acutely when a a patriarch or a matriarch dies in a family, and it goes to dividing up the estate, and you've got a couple of siblings that normally they've loved each other up to that point, and I will just say money can do very funny things to us. It can grip our hearts in very dangerous ways, and here are the Pharisees again, the morally upright of society. They loved money. Jesus preaches the true word to them, and what's their response? They mock him. They ridicule him. Jesus, no thanks, you're not touching that, and and he's dismissed. Because, you look at verse 15, what are they about? They're about justifying themselves. You are those who justify yourselves. Another way of saying this is they're self-righteous. That the Pharisees are self-righteous because they keep the letter of the law, no doubt, they knew God's word well, they acted towards, you know, uh, You know, there was external conformity, but deep down, Jesus knows their hearts. This is why they're always accused of being hypocritical. They obey the letter of the law, but they miss the point of the law. And you say, well, I don't know about this. I mean, you know, my problem's not a strict obedience to the Hebrew law, but think about what the words or the idea of self righteousness means. Self righteousness means I'm my own morality, I'm my own moral agent. I go around Avon or wherever you live and I'm a good upstanding citizen and I have lots of friends and I do the right thing and I don't need anybody, especially God, telling me what to do with any of my affairs, especially something like my body. And what you have in that kind of a Sentiment. if you just unpack it, what's happening there really is that we're subordinating whatever we make of God's word, we're subordinating God's word to the inclinations of our heart rather than vice versa. Again, how many times something like this I've seen in the church, you'll have a family that is members at a church like ours, and I'll just, because it's the the key issue right now in our lives, in, in our culture, but something like sexual ethics, they say, you know, it's pretty plain. Uh, gender roles, sexual ethics, historic, biblical, Christian position, and and we lay it out in our membership covenant. They say, yeah, it's pretty plain what the Bible says, but then what happens, and it's it's very hard to see this, and I'm not picking on them because I know there's a lot of emotion here, but they'll have an adult child, and then let's say that adult child will start living with someone who's not their spouse. And the parents will come back to me and say, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not really sure that God's word really is that clear on this stuff. And, you know, I think God, because he loves all of us, he'd really be okay with this. And while I see that there's deep emotions in something like that, what is happening is, is a fundamental unwillingness to allow God's Word to shape our lives as His people. So again, what, what's happening there is I'm gonna take, okay, my, my impulses, my sinful inclinations, and rather allowing God's Word to shape my inclinations, I'm gonna read my inclinations back into God's Word and rationalize what I want to do. I'm self-righteous, I'm a moral guy. Look, it's all, going to, it's all just gonna be fine. And say, that's the, the divide here. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, ridiculed and mocked Jesus because his word hit them where their idol was. And he said this to them, that you are those who justify yourselves, you stand for your own morality before others, but God knows the truth, and this is a big problem, right? Strong language, this is an abomination in the sight of God. I think to put it succinctly, I, I have very few doubts than people in, ch- in churches like ours we're okay on the theoretical authority of God's word. What I mean by theoretical is you, you survey the people of the church say, yeah, God's word's authority. It's the Bible, of course. I'm not gonna say a bad word about the Bible. It's really important. That's, that's good. Say so that's a theoretical authority. The question is, will I allow God's word to speak into my life, to convict me of my sin, to show me my need so that I can see the greatness of the gospel and what he's done in Jesus. I I think it was Chesterton who said something to this effect. I don't need my faith to be right when I'm right. I need my faith to be right when I'm wrong. To say God's word has exposed me, and I need his help. Self-justification Is it abomination to God? Why is that the case? Because it says, I don't need Jesus. Thank you very much, whatever that is, of him dying on the cross, but I'm just fine without it. I'm gonna do what I want, rationalize my sin, and dare I read that back in to what God's word says. That's two very different approaches. My self-justification, doing what I want, or God's diagnosis of who I really am, that I need help. And that's what's at stake here, the Pharisees versus the disciples. So point one, will we allow, will we be those who really allow God's word to shape our fellowship? Uh, We are going to be a little bit weird in the area of sexual ethics, right? We're going to be really odd. But that's a good thing because as much as it repulses people, it's also attractional, believe it or not. And so will we allow God's word to mold us and to correct us? And I preach this firstly, brothers and sisters, beloved, beloved. I preach this to myself before I preach it to any of you. It's really easy for me to stand up here and talk about God's word and its functional authority. You know what my job is, is to allow God's word to shape my life and to mold me in the same way it is for every Christian. So allowing God's word to really correct me and not fall into self-righteousness, which all of our hearts are prone. Secondly, what's going on here with God's law? God's law, if you can see verse 16, the law and the prophets, Jesus introduces us, the law and the prophets were until John, since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now this is tricky, you can you see what's, go- those are two verses, what's he saying? Because if you read verse 16, it sounds like this Your Old Testament was pretty good for a while until John the Baptist came. And once John the Baptist came, let's get rid of our Old Testaments and get on board with, with Jesus. But then Jesus brings it right back with verse 17. He says, But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away. In other words, this ain't gonna happen. Then for even one letter of the law, it's, it's the equivalent in English of like one one dot of the eye. Before, before one dot of the eye, in God's law becomes defunct, uh, that's just not gonna happen. So he's saying something like this, the law was absolutely essential in guiding you to the point of Jesus and pointing towards Jesus, and it has the enduring value of not only promising and forecasting Jesus, but also continually molding and shaping God's people. So why does he bring this up to the Pharisees? Because the law of God has become the very means of their self-justification. That they knew the Bible well, that it was just one other thing, look at how good we are at keeping the external conformity of all these rules. In fact, we keep the rules better than all of you, you know? We got it together up here. And Jesus says, you've missed the point of the law because the law has always been about the heart, the tender heart. You say, you justify yourselves before men but God knows what you're really about. Do you, do I, have a tender heart? How would you answer that question? How is Jesus, in the one sense, he says the law played an important role until John the Baptist, and it has this kind of enduring value even after Jesus. How do we answer this question? What's the purpose of God's law? And I'll just give you four perspectives uh, from the entirety of scripture, and then the the, the last one being directly from our passage, but what's the point of God's law? Firstly, God's law uh, restrains evil that it's a source of a just society. You ever wonder, you're walking around, I'm a resident of Avon, I'm walking around, you know, say the things that break the law in Avon, which break the law in Ohio, which break the law, really, in, in, in a lot of America, You say, where'd this come from? And you start to read your Bible, you read the first couple of books, you read a book like Deuteronomy, and you say, there's a lot of overlap between God's law and the laws of Avon, it's wrong to plunder your neighbor. Uh, for example. Where does this idea come from? See, the Judeo-Christian law actually forms the basis of a just and right society. See, I happen to be a great defender of this idea that the closer we align ourselves with the law of Moses, that the better off as a society will be. Um, You walk around Washington, D.C., and you squint hard at the buildings, and you see, well, look, this looks like 10 Roman numerals with some language after that. Say, what is that? What's the Ten Commandments? What are they doing up there? Well, God's law is a good law that restrains evil and it provides a just system. You know, the scholar Lutz um, did a famous study of all the political literature. Uh, floating around between 1760 and 1805. It's quite a piece of scholarship, actually. 1760, 1805, of all of our founders, what were they writing, what were they citing? Lutz says it's not even close, that the Bible is by far number one. Even the book of Deuteronomy alone far outshatters the number 2nd cited source, Montague's The Spirit of the Laws*. You say, well, how did the founders set up this society that's been such a wealthy and prosperous, and on the whole, do we have ways to go absolutely, but overall, the most just society? Where'd that come from? At the core, it's because God has given us a good basis for civic law that restrains our evil and institutes the rule of law so that human life might prosper. The ongoing use of the law to restrain our evil and to guide us. Secondly, number two, is that the law of God, you'll, again, this we get Paul commenting on this, who, after all, remember, Paul was a Pharisee. Paul knew the Bible well. The law functions as a mirror. That it's a mirror where you have God kind of probing you. are looking back and seeing, we're seeing ourselves for who we really are. So we go and say, well, what, how should I live my life? What do I do? Is it good to be this way or that way? What, what ought I to do? And then you start to read God's word, and you say, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be like. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I'm in big trouble. How often, as a Christian pastor, I'll read something like the book of James on the importance and or shall i say the misuse of the tongue say oh lord and i'll get a thought of a few days past where i said something that was cruel unkind ungodly misrepresented the lord you see god's law holds up like a mirror that's who i really am who i really am i'm selfish deep down i really am more self-concerned i deep down, like to justify myself. myself. But if I'm honest, there's a whole lot of ugly things in my heart and my life, and I see it in God's law, and it has this boomerang effect. That's the point of the mirror. So here's God's word. It shows me who I am, and it flings me back around to say, I need help. I need help from the outside, of course, comes in the Form of Jesus and the person of Jesus. Thirdly, so again, uses of the law—it restrains evil. It gives us the basic for a just basis for a just society. It's a mirror uh, to our, to our hearts. It shows us who God is and who we are and our need for help. And thirdly, it gives us the good character of God. God says, "This is how you flourish." A word very much used in the Western. Uh, philosophical tradition you know what does it mean to live well well god's law does that says this is how you live well you'll love me and keep my commandments this is how uh, a person glorifies god and if you answer that i say yeah when, when we when we obey god's word life <laughs> life's a lot smoother right I say i rarely meet a guy I say well i followed god's word a little too closely and ever say that's rarely the case I don't think it's ever been the case. It's when we say, well, I've lived outside the parameters of God's word, and you know what? That hurt a lot, and I did a lot of damage. The best example of this is when the lawyer comes to Jesus in Matthew 22, do you you remember the gloss there? (laughs) The lawyer looking to justify himself. Exactly what we're talking about today. The lawyer saying, Jesus, I'm here to ridicule you and pick on you, turns his nose up at Jesus. Which, which, what all, where are all these laws about? And you remember the summary of the law. The law is about loving God and loving your neighbor. Think how far the Pharisees were from that. So here, they're over here using the external conformity to the law to justify themselves, to show everybody what a great person they are, that we don't need God, probably ridiculing really what all this is about. And over here, Jesus is saying, no, don't, can't you see that it's about a tender heart? It's about being God's people and loving God and loving your neighbor. That's what all this, is, all this is about. So the purpose of the law is to reveal the good character of God. And fourthly, you can see then, once again, turning to our passage, that the law and the prophets, the Hebrew Bible, Point. they're a giant signpost, all these promises to the Lord Jesus himself that the law and prophets were till John. And what's John saying? Hey, Jesus is the Lamb of God, a direct connection to the Old Testament sacrificial system. That that is why the law is always of great value to the Christian. Because it, foresees Jesus, it predicts Jesus hundreds of times that there's going to be this figure coming who's gonna die on behalf of sinners like us, that God's got this grand redemptive history. Can't we see that it's been fulfilled in him? The Bible, all one story. If you read Peter's sermon in Acts 3, I mean, that's quite marvelous, It's uh, tying the whole Bible together. Say, so this is what God said long ago, and look at how it's fulfilled in Jesus. Promise and fulfillment, promise and fulfillment. God's word working together to bring salvation to his people, those of us, as our last song says, merit that I could never develop on my own, an all-sufficient merit in Jesus that comes from the outside. So friends, again, think of the two ways. The two ways is to say, I don't need God's word. I'll do it myself. To see any kind of religion as just another means of proving that I'm a pretty good guy and that I've got it all together. And I don't need help. Two drastically different approaches to life, which brings us to the third point. Which I I rarely like to do this, but I must today because this is a couple of this is one clause that's very uh, has been uh, there's been some disagreement on this. So let's read again, verse sixteen. The law and the prophets were until John the Baptist, and then the good news, which by the way is the word gospel and then the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached, and then the difficult clause, and everyone forces his way into it. What does this mean? What does Jesus mean by everyone forces his way into it? A few attempts, and then I'll tell you what I, what I think it means. Some have said that the forcing here is the bad kind of forcing of bringing along God's kingdom. Uh, Some are apprehending it by military force, which is what we see in the garden with Peter. In other words, the God's kingdom is preached, but yet there are still some who are forcing it by means of physical exertion. The problem with that grammatically is that when you have two things linked by the conjunction and, either both sides of the and are positive or both sides of the and are negative. It's rare, in fact, I think never, in all the Greek literature, even outside the Bible, is when you have two things linked by and, and in this formulation, where one would be positive and one would be negative. So if this forced means some people are still doing the wrong thing of taking the kingdom by force, then what we'd have is something that is most surely positive, the preaching of the good news of the kingdom, a very good thing, biblically, and then, but, and everyone's forcing his way into it being a bad thing. So I I don't favor that reading. So the second option Would be when the good news of the gospel is preached that Jesus is here, you can be right with God, that everyone is so keen to to follow Jesus that it's like a force that cannot be stopped. Like, look at the the gospel is preached and now everybody wants in. The the problem with that interpretation is that that's that's not true in Luke's gospel or ever. Uh, We preach Jesus and now it's as if, well, everybody wants to surrender to Jesus, say, no, actually, narrow is the gate and few enter in, and all of us go our own way, that that's much more inclined, so then people uh, go a step further and say, well, maybe it just means the elect of God, you know, the, the word is preached, and the elect of God force themselves in. Again, I think a bit clumsy, but here you go. And I don't know, I, I ran out of time to see why the ESV does not do this. In Greek, when you have a verb, in this case translated into English as forced, what we call the middle voice, and the passive voice are exactly the same word. What we call the middle voice and the passive voice, same identical Greek word. The difference between the middle voice, the middle voice is the form used to show reflexivity. That is when the person acting does the the thing themselves. Just as legitimate reading would be to translate this verb in a passive. So the ESV has used the middle voice. So the good news of, of the kingdom is preached And everyone himself is forcing his way into it. But just as legitimate a reading is something like this. And the word of the kingdom is preached and everyone is being forced into it, passive voice. If you change the English word, again, every translation, you're making some judgment, but just change that a little bit. And the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone is being urgently, urgently encouraged. (laughs) to come into it and that fits the context pretty well why why is jesus preaching to these guys over and over again you got to get right with god can't you see what he's done in jesus will you get right with him today this is of the utmost importance why Shaw, shaw says the same thing every week every week He tells the church to receive Jesus. I mean, he's got 168 hours. Can he say something different? I don't mean to demean what you have going on in your life. You have a lot of very important things going on, a lot of heavy things. But may there be no doubt about it on this matter of two ways, that the most important thing is to see what God has done in Jesus and to respond in faith and receive this gift. Because the other way is to say, I don't need him, I'm good, I'm a moral guy. And that nullifies what God has done in Jesus instead of receiving him. That there are once again two ways and there is a sense of urgency. The good news of the kingdom is preached. All of us following our own way wallowing in our sin and god puts forth jesus to say we can receive him that the blood of christ cleanses us all those things you mean all those things i've done in my life the things that i've never told anybody that i'm embarrassed about all these struggles i have what about those say yes the power of christ breaks in and cleanses the sinner and heals our wounds and binds us and sets us on a course to be his kingdom representatives that's that's great news maybe you're here today because well your mom made you um, I'm glad you're here. But please think carefully about this. Others, maybe you say, I'm going to call my mom later and tell her that I went to church, and she'll be very happy. And you say, that sentiment, you see what it is. It's actually self-justifying. I did the right thing for my mom. She want me to go to church, and I went to church. Aren't I a good son or daughter? Say, no. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I stand exposed. This message is of the greatest urgency. So church family, we're not embarrassed of this. We delight in this news. It is what makes us whole and right with God. It is our banner. It is our anthem. It is our rock. It is our foundation. It governs every bit of our affairs. And in that, the church delights. And please, if you're not following Jesus this Mother's Day, think very carefully about these incredible claims, self-justification or the need for a savior. And I pray that you see your need and you recognize Jesus as your Lord. So the two ways, may we be those who choose the path of life, that as we live that out as kingdom representatives that others would say, you know those Christians, they're really weird, but that's actually, there's something there. What is it that they have? We're surrendered to Jesus, who is our hope. So I'll pray, and then the team will come back and we'll sing a final hymn. Gracious Father, we read this text, and how many of us have those idols in our life to say, well, I'm all on board with what Jesus is preaching except that one thing. And when it comes to that one thing, we dismiss it, we mock it, we ridicule it, we rephrase it. Oh, does it really say? Did I say rationalize it? We rationalize it. Help us to be those, Lord, that continually submit to your authoritative word, trusting that as it shapes us, that it will set us right. May we have the courage to help each other to have that perspective. And Lord, even this week, as we fall into the path of not needing you, of being pretty good people on the western suburbs of Cleveland, be doing very respectable jobs and holding it together to not lose sight of the fact that that we can become like those who, who don't don't see our great need for you so lord help us to see your word for what it is help us to cling all the more tightly to jesus how may we not be ashamed of your good gospel and may by the way we conduct our lives by our speech by everything that we do bring great honor to the lord jesus christ and somehow lord in your good time may others who don't know you come to a personal relationship with you through christ